0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website
1: at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben.
0: Welcome to episode 396 of the podcast. It is January 13th, 2021. If you want to find links and show notes to today's episode, you can go to leanblog.org slash 396. We're joined today by Patrick Adams. You'll learn more about him in a second. His book is officially released today, so congratulations to Patrick. And I also want to thank our new sponsor, Styles Associates. You can learn more about them at www.leanexecs.com slash podcast. All right. Well, hi. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Graven. We're joined today by Patrick Adams. He is uh, CEO of his firm, PA Consulting Services. He also describes himself as an executive lean coach. Um, so Patrick, thank you for joining us. How are you?
1: Hey, thank, hey, thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate you having me today. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really glad we could talk. Thank you uh, for having me as uh, a guest on your podcast. If you want to give uh, a quick plug about your show.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so we kicked off the Lean Solutions podcast about, oh, I think we're going on I don't know month three or four now. Uh, we're in episode eighteen now, uh, and it was great to have you on uh, not too long ago, and uh, talking about your your newest book, uh, Measures of Success. So, love the book, and uh, obviously loved loved uh, talking to you personally, doing a little deep dive into that during our podcast.
0: Well, yeah, well, thank you for um, you know hosting that conversation, and um, you know again welcome. To the podcast world, back in episode three, four, three ninety four of this podcast series, uh, if, if people heard that episode, Patrick was one of uh, the other lean podcasters who uh, all you know did a little short um, conversation about the um, about your show. So, regular listeners to this podcast, they think I've already heard a little bit about you and your podcast, Patrick, but. Um, I'm glad today we can take a deeper dive into your book, which I think you yeah. might have mentioned briefly when we had... That was kind of the mini podcast. This is the...
1: It was. <laughs> well, I'm excited to be here for the extended version. So yeah, yeah. yeah look, looking forward to, to uh, talking a little bit more about my book and and doing a deep dive with you today, Mark.
0: Yeah. And so that book, uh, it's called Avoiding the Continuous Appearance Trap. So we're going uh, to... That, that leads... That, that there's a couple of questions then about what that means and what and we're, yes. we're gonna dig into that. Uh, the subtitle is 12 Questions to Understand What's Truly Underneath Your Culture. And so we'll, we'll take a dive into the book. Um, the paperback is gonna be released uh, January 13th, so coming up real soon. Yes. The ebook is gonna be available in February, right?
1: Yes, February 10th, it'll be available. And then I so think- So both I the, uh... oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say both the uh, paperback and the ebook are available uh, for presale right now. Uh, the the paperback is only available in the U.S. for presale, but uh, as of January 13th and for one week past, it'll be available to the rest of the world uh, at the introductory, uh, you know, presale price. Uh, but the ebook is currently available to everyone at the at the uh, presale price.
0: Yeah. And then I saw someone on LinkedIn ask about uh, an audiobook version. You're doing that. Yes,
1: with- we're going to do that next year. I'm excited to record that and, and uh, get that out there. We've also had some requests already about uh, getting it out there in Spanish as well. Uh, oh. So might be working on that next year, too.
0: Wow. And, and, by, and you mean later here in 2021 by... That's by, right. Right. We get into the year boundary
1: here. And <laughs> That's right. Yes.
0: Later this year. I mean, an audiobook is a big undertaking. So, <laughs>
1: but... That's 2021. true. 2021, we're, we're... I don't know that it'll be released in 2021, but we're definitely going to start recording it this year and then potentially release this year, maybe 2022. We'll see. Okay. Well, cool.
0: Um, So let's go back and, you know, I always like to ask guests a little bit about their Lean origin story, if you will, if you can sort of talk about, um, you know, your your career arc and, you know, within that, when did you first get exposed uh, to Lean? Uh,
1: So I like to I like to say that my first exposure to Lean was actually when I was in high school. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, It wasn't until later that I was like, wow you know what? That was a pretty interesting company that I worked for. Uh, so many of you probably know uh, McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, uh, that I worked at McDonald's as a fry cook um, when I was in high school. And uh, for those of you that maybe have seen the movie The Founder or heard of it, or if you haven't seen it, you should I've, probably I've go watch it. I've
0: heard of it. I've, I've, a lot of people have recommended that. I'm going to jump in. You should, you should
1: go see it. it. Okay. Uh, great movie. And it really, it's, it, I would say my favorite, I'm not going to do a spoiler here, but uh, my favorite part of the movie, I'll just give one little piece here, uh, is the part when they're uh, out in the parking lot or the, I think they're on a tennis court actually. And they they have their entire uh, restaurant laid out with chalk on the ground And they have all of their workers that are going to be doing work in the restaurant in their positions on the chalk floor. And uh, they're up kind of up above them on a platform or something. I can't remember exactly, but it's almost like uh, they're orchestrating it like an orchestra. uh, And everybody's walking through, you know, their their particular roles. And it's a really interesting, uh, you know, just uh, just a, a great uh, tie back to lean and the work that yeah. we do in the continuous improvement world. Yeah. And that's just one piece of what they do. And, and really what they're trying to do is figure out, you know, how do we make sure that we're not bumping into each other because the, their goal is to get a hamburger out in 30, I think it's 30 seconds or less, uh, which was unheard of at that time. Right. And so they're, you know, they're bu- they're just making sure they're not bumping into each other. They're making sure, you know, do we need to move this over, you know, two inches to the left, you know, what, where's all the waste, that we can try to, and they don't, they don't call it that, right? They're not talking in lean terms, uh, but that's exactly what they were doing. And uh, so that's just one piece uh, on top of uh, many other things in the movie that are, that are pretty, uh, pretty cool to watch. And so anyways, uh, when I was working at McDonald's, a lot of the same stuff, you know, I even remembered back to the, uh, the ketchup and the mustard squirters, and those were actually, those are revolutionary uh, tools, solutions to problems that they came up with uh, to speed up the process and, and, you know, make sure that they have the, the same amount of ketchup coming out at the, you know, so oh. it's when you look back on that, I, I didn't even know it when I was there, but now I look back and I go, wow, that's really interesting how they, you know, all of that connects to, to what I do today. So anyways, that was my first exposure to lean. Uh, and I, I still love, anytime I go into McDonald's, I try to minimize the amount of fast food that I eat, but when I am in there, I, you know, I take a look at different things. I just noticed the other day uh, the uh, McFlurry, the spoon in the McFlurry. Did you know that the the spoon itself is also the mixer that they hook up into the into the machine? I did
0: not know that. Yeah,
1: so it's uh, it's kind of neat to see just different things that they've come up with to try to improve, you know, how they do things. I mean, so, I anyways,
0: that that reduces the need for them to clean it.
1: Exactly, they don't have it. They don't have to clean anything the spoon cut, this mixer comes right off, stays in the cup. And then they just put a new one on every time. It's pretty, pretty, it didn't always be, it wasn't always that way though. Right. Someone said, Hey, why are we having to clean this thing every day? Let's get rid of that. Uh, so so it sounds anyways, like,
0: it sounds like they gave you an, an, um, an appreciation for operations. Exactly. I mean, yes, that's right. McDonald's <laughs> nobody would really say it's quote unquote lean, but you're looking at the um, yeah, just the need to have, things run smoothly and, and consistently. And what you describe in the founder, that, that reminds me of like what a lot of people would call 3P. the exactly. kind of Cardboard factory of let's simulate the work and the design of the work before we actually do the real work,
1: right? That's absolutely what they were doing for sure. So that was my first exposure to lean. Uh, however, my first formal exposure I guess would be at uh, after I, I spent uh, just under eight years in the military. And when I got out of the military, uh, I landed a job as a production supervisor at a plastics plant in West Michigan, um, and then uh, the, that co- that particular company wasn't doing any kind of lean or continuous improvement. But shortly after that, I was uh, I landed a job in um, an automotive uh, supplier and uh, had some had my first expo- formal exposure to lean. Um, and then from there, I, I worked through a, at a few different companies and, and uh, ended up at Parker Hannafin, which is, uh, they just have just an amazing culture mm-hmm. of continuous improvement. You know, uh, they have a VP of lean and uh, they work, the, the you know, the same standard um, lean program all the way through the company um, and very well connected. The training programs are amazing. So uh, I, I found myself working under a couple of really great lean coaches mm-hmm. and uh, just really took me, you know, took me uh, to a whole nother world uh, around uh, understanding you know, what true continuous improvement looks like in an organization and very much tied to the Toyota production system. And they, they follow very closely um, with what, you know, you would traditionally know as lean. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, in the auto industry that, um, you know, if they've got Toyota as a customer, Toyota is going to help them um, not just pressure, like, you know, that was the the idea back in the big three of you know, like you know they would just you know quote unquote beat up on their suppliers mm-hmm. was the language that that you would hear a lot and demand price reductions and that's different than coming in and collaborating i mean did you have any of that experience with toyota as a customer when you were there uh
1: so that not, not when i was at parker hannafin uh, but at a couple of the other automotive companies that i worked for uh we definitely had uh tie-ins with toyota and um definitely, Found myself working alongside a, a few uh, Toyota uh, managers that would come over and, and uh, you know be housed in our plant, you know, and would work right alongside them. So absolutely had some had some really great conversations and some and also some frustrating uh, conversations at times too, which was good for me.
0: Well, like frustrating, like what what's one that comes to mind? Like what types of issues were they there to help you with, and what what, what was frustrating about that?
1: Uh, so one of the one of the companies that I worked for uh, would, had uh, some pretty significant quality issues, and uh, so we were we were working through um, you know how to how to obviously deliver good quality product to uh, the big three automakers, and and um, so we we had more than just Toyota in the plant with us, um, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know they would come in and and uh, obviously from a coaching standpoint, you know, would challenge us with a lot of, um, you know, really good questions that maybe we had considered and maybe we hadn't considered. And uh, sometimes it, you know, for, for people that, you know, maybe didn't understand what uh, what they were trying to do, uh, it, could, it could be very frustrating. Like, well, you know, we know that, we know that, you know, but to have someone holding you accountable and asking you the questions that you probably should be asking yourself was pretty helpful for us. Um, And, uh, you know, and obviously the way that, uh, the way that they would approach it was more out of respect versus maybe some of the other automakers that would come in and it was more of a, you know, we're better than you. And I had that approach too, which again was very frustrating, uh, but we're better than you and, and, uh, you need to do it this way, or, you know, you're not going to be our supplier anymore. And, you know, to have those two very different approaches, uh, obviously, um, the, the results were um, you know we did we did our best with both organiz- with both companies, but uh, the re- re- results sometimes would be a lot different. you know you'd have much more much better conversations and much more um, uh, just you, you would move a lot further along with with the more respectful conversations and people that were in there to ha- that you knew were there to help um, and be part of the solution versus you know just telling you how to how to do your work. So. Yeah. So, when you were at those other
0: companies, were you still in direct production leadership roles, or were you in sort of that internal improvement specialist role, or both?
1: A little bit of both. So, each company that I've worked for, I've I've jumped uh, in different roles, uh, and, and you know, some some were operations roles. I worked as a value stream manager, I worked as a plant manager, I've worked as a production supervisor, uh, and then also I've worked as a, a plant lean manager, as a you know corporate lean manager. Um, so, uh, as a, just a lean, not just, but a lean practitioner with some companies. Uh, and so I've, I've definitely dabbled in a lot of different, uh, different roles within organizations. And, and for me, you know, it's very helpful when you, uh, have worked as a, as a production supervisor, as a plant manager, because, you know, when a lot of times when you, uh, you take these tools or these techniques that maybe you learn from a book and you think they should work one way, uh, but you know, the reality is every industry is different. Every team is different. Every, you know, it it's d- depends on the time that you're, you know, going after these these problems and things that the solutions can look very different. The tools can be different. And so understanding that and working, you know, in operations has helped me to really uh, understand the importance of being able to adapt and improvise and be flexible with the tools and techniques. And, and you know, sometimes you, you have problems that you just got to come up with experiment and come up with your own solution that maybe isn't in a textbook somewhere, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, if it fits, if it fits and it's reducing or eliminating the problem, then it's probably the right tool to be, uh, implemented.
0: Yeah. So there's, there's tools and, you know, as you explore in your book, um, you know, there's, there's culture. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, here's some of your reflections, um, from your time in the military. Um, I, I, I have no, um, Military service of my own. I've, I've worked with some uh, leaders who were retired military, um, and um, it really, you know, learned tried to pick their brains um, about their experiences. Um, it was I'm, I'm curious in your experience uh, in, in the military. What sort of leadership lessons or perspectives you brought with you into. Production supervision, um, or you know, that you that carry with you today, that in some way seem compatible with lean.
1: Sure, um, I think probably the the um, the greatest benefit that I gained uh, in the military that I've been able to apply uh, outside is servant leadership. You know, I've worked I worked for a lot of different leaders when I was in the military, uh, but there are a few that were true servant leaders and um, and those are the leaders that I—I I mean, I—I I, I wanted to do anything I could do to, to help them succeed, you know, and um, and they and vice versa, you know, they were they would jump through hoops and whatever they could do to help remove roadblocks and uh, you know remove the problems and and I mean it was a it was a partnership, it was a team effort, and I never felt with those leaders that they were better than me. It was more, even though they might've been a higher rank than me, or, you know, I knew that when it was time for me to, uh, to listen and, you know, follow orders, right. That they were a a higher rank than me. Uh, so, you know, that I understood that, that, but also I knew that when it was time to, you know, work together as a team that, you know, those servant leaders were, they were throwing their rank out the window and rolling their sleeves up and ready to do what, what they needed to do to help get the job done. And uh, I just think of one one story um, when I was, I actually went through uh, SEER training, which is survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. It's um, it's training for if you were to ever uh, be put into a POW camp or caught, a, you know, um, and so it's, uh, some of it is is are things that I'm not, I'm not allowed to talk about, but I can tell, I can talk about the story, uh, within, uh, there was a young captain who, uh, we had been in this POW, this train this training, uh, POW camp for, um, a few days and very little to eat. And prior to that, we were evading the enemy. So we hadn't had much to eat before then either. And, uh, we, the, 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 uh, the U S military puts together a, uh, like a fake uh, enemy, right? Uh, that you train with, and so these these uh, other country, soldiers, right? You know, what's a, that?
0: A fake country, you mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and um, and they they even it's kind of funny because they even talk like they're from a different country. Uh, so uh, it's actually a, it's a really good training program. Uh, mm-hmm. But they uh, they had brought some soup out for us. And of course, it smelled amazing and everybody was starving and we couldn't wait to get our, our cup of soup. And so there was this big line and they they had lined us up with the officers ahead of the enlisted. And at that time I was enlisted. And so I was towards the back of the line and this captain was the higher ranking uh, person there, and and so he was in the front, and uh, so he got a full cup of soup. The next couple officers got a full cup of soup, um, and so the majority of the officers got through the line before the soup accidentally got knocked over, yes. right? And it was all over the floor, uh, and nothing left for anybody else in line. And uh, this captain took it upon himself to pull everybody together and uh, take. Their soup and divided up between enough people to be able to, you know, spread it out, and everybody was able to get a little bit. Um, And so again, it's just a, it's an example of a a true servant leader, someone who isn't just out there for themselves. They're not looking to, you know, do, you know, they're not looking for. I just need to get myself promoted. I need to climb the ladder. No, they're there to make sure that their troops are safe, that their troops are taken care of, that the, the roadblocks and the challenges that they're experiencing are are eliminated. Um, And that's that's I've been able to take that those learnings and apply them in the lean world because it's really what a true lean leader should look like. You know, someone that is not looking to, you know, to be in it for themselves, um, but they're going to be promoted because they're doing the right thing for their people and that they're removing roadblocks. They're helping their team to succeed, Um, whatever it takes for them, you know, to be part of the team, not to be you know, um, above the team. And so it's, it's been a great way for me to, you know, transfer some of those learnings, uh, to the civilian world and what I do.
0: Yeah. I mean, your story reminds me of one of Simon Sinek's books, uh, leaders eat last, which I yes. comes from you know, military stories.
1: It sure does. And that's, and that there's a reason why they made the officers go first, right. Uh, they're teaching lessons and those are the exact lessons that they're teaching.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, and I could imagine maybe if it was a real, I don't know if this is part of the simulation, like, you know, the enemy would maybe try to sow um, conflict by feeding the officers first and trying to sort of divide, uh, break people's spirit a little bit, unless then servant leaders step up and say, no, everybody gets some.
1: Absolutely. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And uh, like I said, it's a great a great training program and they, they do it. They do cold weather SEER training. I, my SEER training was... Uh, wasn't in necessarily uh, cold weather. It, we were still in the snow, but not not like that. Not like uh, up in the mountains of California or anything like that, where you're you're freezing. Uh, but really good training overall. So. And, and
0: what branch of the service was this? I was in the Marine
1: Corps. Okay. Uh, but they do SEER training for every branch of the service.
0: Okay. Well, thank thank you for that service. And
1: absolutely. Um,
0: your uh, opportunity to bring you know lessons into like I said the civilian sector i mean one of probably you know um one of my favorite leaders i've worked with in um healthcare um jim adams who i might have given a shout out to in the podcast before uh he's retired now so hopefully he's with family and not listening to um podcasts about lean <laughs> but um jim was retired military medicine and then was working in um, you know children's hospital civilian sector and um Lean and systems thinking and Peter Senge and stuff like that all really resonated with Jim, not just intellectually but just personally. Like that mm. was, you know, and he spent a lot of time, you know, sort of explaining to me that, you know, in, in military medicine, this was not the heat of battle. That was not a environment of following orders or people die. That he he explained not just the servant leadership, but a much more collaborative participatory culture. And that's what he was trying to then help build at this children's hospital in Dallas. So I really that's amazing. appreciated him being able to bring that leadership um, in into that workplace.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I, lo- I love, I mean, there's so many, so many great stories of, of how, uh, and actually in my book, I talk about, there's many stories, be, you know, I spent eight years in the Marine Corps. So, you know, that's one of, one of many stories that I talk about uh, in transitioning a lot of those learnings over. And, and, you know, I've worked with out in different um, manufacturing facilities and, and other uh, companies outside of the manufacturing, even with with different people who have been in the military. And it's always amazing for me to see how, uh, how they've been able to take a lot of different, you know, not just from a leadership perspective, but even just simple things. There's so many things, even from a from a 5S perspective. Or, you know, I talk uh, I talk a lot about the M16 service rifles and in military boot camp. Uh, how the there's some really really great lessons that are transferred um, just in cleaning your your rifle and how that is transitioned out into the you know into the lean world. So some pretty cool stuff.
0: I mean that sounds like standard work and there are probably very compelling reasons for the standard work in terms of not wanting your weapon to jam when it's right for example
1: yeah you, you it's probably pretty important that your weapon doesn't jam when you need it to go off if you're serving in the in the military uh so yes very important stuff and uh you would also think that if if it's important for you to have standard work you know in the in the military then why would you not want to have Something similar in the civilian world. If you know that it's proven to you know uh, be the right approach, uh, then why wouldn't you apply it to your to what you're doing? You know, in yeah. your industry, in your organization. So yeah. Well, you know, I'm thinking
0: back to this was going back. Um, I'd have to look up the episode number. I did two episodes with um, Lieutenant uh, Randy Russell, who was with okay. the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department in Florida, and they had a big lean initiative and so you know you you kind of pose this question Patrick about you know best practices and why wouldn't you um they were really struggling with um this idea of I guess the sheriffs and the deputies this idea that my car is my car Mm -hmm. and um explaining why and there was there was resistance was described as resistance to the idea of kind of standardizing where things are stored in vehicles and I remember Lieutenant Russell Um, You know, kind of explaining why it's not just do this because we said so, but coming up with scenarios where, let's say, there was a situation where there were multiple cars and multiple sheriffs on scene and um, there were, let's say, there was shooting and you needed to grab uh, a rifle from someone else's vehicle. Wouldn't you want to know exactly where that rifle is going to be? And not mm-hmm. waste time looking for it. And he said, you know, you, you know, coming up with scenarios like that, it wasn't difficult to come up with scenarios where that, you know, there's a purpose behind the lean practice, and, and I think that was really compelling to people. It seemed.
1: And I've heard the same stories. My brother is a police officer uh, here in West Michigan, and he also served in the Marine Corps, and uh, so he's told me similar things about some of the work that they do and how they try to standardize uh, different approaches to to different things that they do and similar reasons to what you're saying he there he also does he's a, also a fireman too so they do both um law enforcement and and fire prevention fire uh so they so similarly you know where where does the, the equipment go for you know when they return from training or response to a fire or anything like that i mean if you're if you're the first one on scene, you know, wouldn't, isn't it going to be helpful if you know exactly where the equipment is that you need to save someone's life. Right. Um, so obviously very applicable. Um, and like you said, especially when you have a very, very, uh, clear purpose in why it's important. Right. Um, but even, even still in, in, you know, hospitals, in uh, manufacturing plants, wherever it might be, I mean, everyone has a purpose and a goal for what they're trying to accomplish. And if you can connect, you know, the work that you're doing with that purpose and, and uh, look for opportunities to be able to fulfill that purpose or that goal, uh, you know, quicker or better, you know, fulfill that mission. If you're a nonprofit in a better way and be able to service, you know, the, the families or whatever the mission is that you have in a better way, um, you know, then let's do it, you know, yeah. let's, let's figure out how to make that happen.
0: Yeah. Um, one other thing that struck me in in hearing about the SEER training, um, you know, we talk about standard work and it's not just the document, it's how do we train? How do we confirm understanding? Um, you know, it, you, what you were describing, was very experiential training yes. with observation and coaching and feedback. They didn't just throw a manual at you and say, here, read this, you're trained.
1: That's right. That's so true. And, uh, it, and it's the same thing with when, when you're cleaning an M16A2 service rifle in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, you, there is definitely classroom time. So you are going into a classroom, you are hearing from an instructor, you are given a manual, but that's one very small part of training and learning, the, you know, the right way. And every, we know everybody learns differently, right? I mean, that may be enough for some people to be, to sit in the classroom and, and read through a manual, uh, they may be, be able to pick it up, but not everybody learns that way. And also, you know, through repetition, um, people are going to be able to, you know, learn things better or get quicker, faster, you know, um, all of those different things. So, you know, in, in the classroom training is one piece, you know, followed up by coaching, practical application, and then, you know, assessments, you know, uh, audits, are you doing it properly? You know, we in in the standard work uh, it says that you need to clean you know this particular section of the rifle. So, are they going to check that? Of course they are, right? Because it's called out in the standard work, and that's important. There's a reason why it's called out. Right. Um, so that's those are all very important things. But it doesn't. It's not just from one manual. There are multiple steps to ensuring that someone uh, understands the why behind it and can actually do it. And then, you know, is it becomes something a habit or something that they're continuously doing, you know, and that's only going to be found through auditing or understanding if it's if they understand, you know, what what they're doing by asking them questions and watching them do it. And that's exactly how the military does it. Yeah,
0: that's great. Um, I want Before we talk about the book, um, you transitioned into doing uh, consulting through PA Consulting Services, um, if you tell the audience a little bit, you know how that came to be. What types of companies and organizations do you work with?
1: Sure. Uh, so, about three years ago now, uh, we I moved out on my own and and uh, started doing consulting. And uh, you know, I I've worked with a lot of different companies. I've worked in a lot of different industries, and and you know, have uh, worked for a lot of different leaders and. Um, as I'm sure many people who are listening know, and, and, you know, Mark, um, you know, lean principles are timeless. They, uh, can be applicable across many different industries with many different teams. And, um, you know, that when you truly understand what continuous improvement is all about and and the, the philosophy behind it, and, you know, understanding that, you know, what it means to become a, an organization that is learning continuously, um, it's, it's so powerful to me. And, you know, there's nothing that I love more than to see the light bulb go off with people that I'm coaching. And they, they actually understand that. And they know that it's not about the tools. It's not, it's not this one tool that you have to apply in order to become, you know, lean in quotation marks. Um, But it's really a true understanding of continuously learning and improving over time and getting better, getting closer, you know, to whatever that true North is that you've set for your, for your organization, for yourself. Uh, when people truly understand that it's, it's so fulfilling for me to see that happen and to be part of that process, you know? And, um, there's so many times over the years when I've wanted to just give them the answer and just tell them, you know, what you need to do. And, uh, it, it, it's just you never people never get it that way. And it, it or it's not sustainable that way for me to give you the answer me to tell you my way of doing things. People have to learn themselves. Um, you know, what is the right approach for them and for their business and for their team in their industry, they have to learn it themselves through experience. And so by asking the right questions as a coach, um, I'm helping guide them, you know, down that road of, of learning. And again, there's nothing more uh, nothing more exciting to me than when people get it. And so, you know, about three years ago, I decided I, I wanted to do this uh, on a on a full time professional basis as a consultant. And and uh, so I stepped out, and um, and now I'm I'm helping leaders and all, again all over the world in different industries um, help them to to reach that point where they have that light bulb go off, and uh, helping them to spread that across their organization. Um, and I work with all different size companies, you know, small companies or small nonprofits to um, large billion dollar companies. And, and um, you know, the result is is always the same. And it's it's just uh, get, it's me going in and helping those light bulbs uh, get turned on. And that's what I so much enjoy. So it's been a, it's been a great uh, ride for me. And I'm looking forward to many more years of continuing to work with more companies um, and teaching them. In uh, coaching them on the things that I loved to do, so yeah.
0: and having a book coming out here may may help then with uh, the consulting efforts other absolutely. Uh, people learning about you and your approach and your philosophy to things. So um, before we you know talk about some of the the, the the content and what you mean by you know the com- continuous appearance trap, um, I, I also like to ask, authors when, when they're on the show, kind of the origin story of the book? Like what was the spark sure. or the inspiration that said, Hey, I'm going to do this.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I, and I'll try not to give away uh, until we get to the, the continuous appearance oh, go, uh, go, ahead. It's
0: go ahead. but, but uh, it's there. a big
1: part of my story, you know, it's no, no, it, so the, you know, uh, I've, I, again, as I mentioned, I worked with a lot, I've have worked with a lot of companies I've worked, you know, in, the corporate world for a lot of different companies. And, and, um, you know, I, I've, I continue to see a lot of the same struggles with a lot of organizations that try to adopt lean or continuous improvement as their, their, you know, methodology or their way of, of improving. And, um, you know, so many different organizations and leaders, uh, have a, uh, maybe a skewed thought or approach of what lean is really about. And, um, you know, through my through my travels and different work around different places. Um, the, the, um, the result is, uh, I usually see the similarities in what I've laid out in the book. And, you know, in the book, I talk about these two different companies that I worked for at a time. Um, and if you were to walk into these two companies at the surface level, they would look very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, you would see a lot of the same KPIs, you know, safety cost, quality delivery, you would see, um, Maybe similar org structures. Uh, you would you would see some even some you know great visual management uh, on the walls. You'd see some value stream maps on you know, both companies. You'd probably see some some lines on the floor you know around trash cans and different things like that. Um, so very very similar at the surface level. Uh, You know, but if you if you dove down underneath and you really looked at what's what was really happening in both of these organizations, one of the companies had an amazing culture of continuous improvement to the core. Um, And we'll talk more a little bit more about that. But the other company had what I like to call this culture of continuous appearance Um, and obviously quite a bit different than continuous improvement. It would be the complete opposite um, of continuous improvement um, to be a company that has a culture of continuous appearance. And actually in the book, I call the two companies, um, in order to protect the, uh, the innocent, (laughs) uh, company continuous appearance and company continuous improvement. So, uh, you know, company continuous appearance, when you looked underneath, um, it was a very toxic culture and the people struggled to work there. In fact, the turnover was very high, um, know the the kpis uh you would usually see were always green Mm -hmm. uh you know never you would never see anything but green and if you did uh you knew there someone was going to be really upset and there were you know more of a fear-based culture and and, um and so that obviously calls caused some certain behavior Um, but people people struggled to work there Um, you know they came to work to punch a clock and leave Um, they there was a lot of flavor of the month stuff going on a lot of firefighting what we call firefighting um, very much response to problems versus being proactive Um, so all of that was underneath right Um, another thing that I like to mention is the you know, I mentioned the lines on the floor, right? The majority of the time, nothing would be where it's supposed to be in, in place. And um, But if there was an executive visit, say yeah. you know, a tour that was going to happen, oh man, everything gets put back in its place, right? Shut everything down, shut the lines down uh, and let's clean for two days. And, you know, the value stream maps on the wall uh, maybe had been updated three years ago or, you know, whatever. So those are the things that you would see when you get underneath And so, anyways, you asked me the question of why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always been a struggle for me to uh, to see companies struggle like that. It's not that they are intentionally wanting to be a company of continuous appearance. Um, They really want, truly, to understand continuous improvement and, and adopt it and really receive the benefits of it in their organization. But they just they just don't know where to start. They don't know you know, how to get there. Um, and so, you know, I felt like I needed to, to get, get a book out there that could help uh, people that are living in organizations uh, like that and um, hopefully help them to, to start their journey towards uh, moving away from that, towards more of a, a culture of continuous improvement. Um, and so the idea, you know, throughout the book is, you know, I use examples from these two companies uh, and I talk through 12 questions that uh, can help people to really assess where they are. Um, And not, not that it's a roadmap that, you know, they're not going to be able to apply question one for one month and then question two, although that's a great way to approach it is reading and experimenting in question one. Uh, But I, I think that the 12 questions are laid out in a way that they need to really understand them and be honest with themselves about where they are and then start experimenting towards, uh, a, a good solution to those questions. And yeah. so that's really why I wrote the book. Okay.
0: Um, you know, before we delve into the detail, I'm I'm curious, did you, um, or is this through a publisher? Did you self-publish?
1: Uh, I self-published uh, and it, it is available uh, on Amazon mm-hmm. um, or it will be next week. So
0: yeah. Well, good. Good for you. I would say there were pros and cons to that choice, but,
1: um, yes. And more, I, I did, uh, talk with, publisher. what's that?
0: That's a more and more people are doing the self-publishing route.
1: Yeah. And, and I talked with a few people and, and learned as much as I could about the, this is my first book. So uh, I wanted to learn as much as I could. And, and I decided that for me and for the goals that I had for the book, that it would be best that I self-published. Yeah.
0: Okay. Congratulations on almost being at the finish line. I guess you're in a mode now you you just got to wait for it to officially become available, right?
1: Yes. It's been a lot of work (laughs) to say the least, but I I have an amazing launch team that's been, you know, very active uh, throughout the last few months. And, and uh, just a lot of people that have come along my side and helped coach, coach me through the process. And, and uh, I just wanted to make sure that this was going to be a book that was going to be very valuable for people, and and that could really help a lot of people, and, and I think that's what we have. So I'm excited yeah. about it. Yeah.
0: So again, the book is um, avoiding the continuous appearance trap. Twelve questions to understand what's truly underneath your culture. So, um, Patrick, you, you, there's there's two questions that we talked about you know, before we started the show. Um, can you share those two questions of, of the twelve? I think.
1: Sure. Sure. About that. Uh, so. Uh, there are 12 questions in the book. And, um, you know, I've had a few people ask me, you know, are they in order of, you know, the the, the order that you should try to apply them in? And the answer is no. Um, they're, there's, they're not in that way, uh, in order in that way uh, for a reason. Um, but there is at the end of every chapter, there's a list of, uh, of, of a few questions that go along with the question of the chapter um, that help you to prioritize these questions. And then at the end of the book, there's a full assessment that you can take again to establish, you know, priority for the questions and where you should start at. Um, and then the idea is that really this could be the, the beginning of, um, you know, a, a scientific approach to, you um, for you and your organization um, and really just experimenting toward uh, becoming better and learning for your own industry, for your own team, for your own people, what's going to be the best approach. Um, But yes, so there are two questions that I wanted to to, uh, just talk about um, that come from those 12. The first one is uh, question number nine in the book, and it's how safe is it for your employees to fail? Uh, so my, my lead-in quote for this chapter actually comes from uh, Katie Anderson, who you and I both know are very well, uh, but she's the author of uh, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn. And she said that leaders' uh, leaders words and actions set the culture for their organization. Seemingly small choices when it comes... Oh, yeah, yeah there you go. Here's All the, right. Let
0: me interrupt. Here's the book. Yeah.
1: Yes. Very great book. Uh, good read for anyone. So. Yeah.
0: I'm sorry. Um, I,
1: I interrupted you. Go ahead. No. So, uh, it's, she says, uh, leaders words and actions set the culture for the organization. Seemingly small choices when it comes to language and behavior can have a big impact in shaping the people centered culture you want for your organization. So, uh, in the beginning, uh, and that comes directly from her book. So obviously if, if you have not read her book yet, go out on Amazon and grab a copy of that. Uh, so that, that is available currently. Um, so uh in the beginning of the chapter i actually reference this is another military story for you but uh michael abershoff uh, who's a former navy commander and he's the author of it's your ship management techniques from the best damn ship in the navy have you read it
0: um i've i've read oh gosh there's a similar book called turn your ship around and i forget yeah yeah that i've read but
1: yeah there's there's a couple really good ones that are out there but uh it's a a story of organizational transformation Innovative leadership for the military, right? Um, but he took command of the worst-performing ship in the Pacific Fleet, and then he made it number one in 12 months. But here was the key: he used the exact same crew, right? And so, I mean, if you to, to make that apply to us, right? I mean, how do how did he do that, right? If you think about a company who's maybe the worst-performing company in their industry, how do you go from number from the worst to number one in 12 months with the same exact uh, employees, the same exact leadership team, right? I mean, so there's some really, really great principles in that book that can help all of us to understand what it means to um, to have a transformative culture and move in the, in the right direction. Uh, but in the book, the captain, uh, he one of the things that he says is that he uh, he gave all decision-making rights to his crew, um, which in again, in the military, you have to know when that when is it time for me to listen to orders, right? And when can I make some of my own decisions? And uh, uh, this was a point where, you know, the captain said, I want you guys to be in charge of this. I want you guys to make the decisions in these things. And they had never, they had never had that before. They had always been told what to do. You know, always, someone else was always making all the decisions for them. Someone else was always accountable for all the decisions. So they didn't have to worry about accountability. They just, they woke up in the morning, they were told what they needed to do for the day. They did what they needed to do. And then they went back to their, their you know, whatever their room or whatever they were going to do that day. Um, but with with uh, Captain Abershoff, things were different. He, he wanted to uh, make sure that they were involved in decisions and that they were accountable for their decisions that they made. Um, and the thing that he says in the book, he says, even if the decisions were wrong, he would stand by them. And hopefully they would learn from their mistakes and more, the more responsibility that they were given, the more that they learned, the more that they learned and learned is the key, right? So he he, he didn't want them to just make decisions and, and uh, you know, and make the always make the right decisions. He knew that they would make mistakes and that, that must've been difficult, you know, for a captain to turn over that authority, knowing that his crew would make mistakes. Right. But at the same time, he knew the, the result of them learning from their mistakes, you know, it would take some time, but the result of that would, would outweigh, you know, the the possibility of them making some, some bad mistakes now, or some, uh, some mistakes. The the thing is though, is he didn't just tell them to make decisions and then, you know, never check back on them. Right. Uh, and this, again, this goes back to, you know, another chapter, uh, another question in the book around uh, leadership behavior, but um he was showing up to uh, make sure to check in on them, you know, not not overly, uh, you know, managing them, but just making sure that they knew that he cared that, you know, when they did make maybe a, a bad decision that he was asking them, well, what did you learn from that? You know, and, and how can we change that for next time? Uh, but the, the responsibility was shared. You know, and so uh, it became a really, really great uh, culture for them on the ship and obviously turned things around considerably, Um, you know, and and one of the things that I talk about in the chapter is uh, for us and how this applies to us, but, you know, how many problems can one manager attend to? Right. You know, I personally worked in many organizations where I felt like I I was, I didn't have enough time, right? I go home at the end of the day and it'd be like, what did I even get done today? I had so many things on my plate that I felt like you know, I was, wasn't getting anything done um, how many problems can one manager attend to you know if, if everyone in the organization is waiting for one manager to make a decision, how slow is that decision-making process um, when you share decisions and accountability throughout the team, um, you know so many more things can get done and you know obviously you, as a leader you have more time to be able to accomplish things so that's the first question. Um, and uh i don't know if you had any questions on that
0: yeah i mean before moving on to the other one i'm I'm curious your thoughts of i mean when we talk about um failure and making it safe to fail there's you 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 talked about it being situational when do you follow orders when do you get to decide for yourself um there are some mistakes that are you know little learning opportunities Um, Mm -hmm. like for example i was thinking earlier when you're talking about um your service in the marine corps when i was in grad school i was doing an internship um the leader who was my supervisor for all of that um had served in the marines and it was the uh, the marine corps birthday oh yeah and that was my first time having been around when there were there were some other um you know people celebrating and there was a cake and and i made the mistake and that was a small mistake it was not a deadly mistake um mm-hmm. i think I, I i referred to someone as a former marine ah yes I learned. (laughs) I was politely corrected. I was educated. Once a Marine,
1: always a Marine. Yes.
0: They are just no longer in active duty. They are Marines. And, and, you know, um, so that was, you know, fine. I learned from that and I I was in the wrong and I didn't know any better. And they knew I didn't know. Right. Small mistake. Sure. Um, I remember it, but, you know, I guess because I've tried to avoid that mistake again, but um, there are some mistakes that would be, life-threatening catastrophic mm. um in some ways and the, the one way i've heard this explained is you know make lots of small mistakes as a way of preventing big ones sure what what, what are your thoughts on on that idea this doesn't mean hey everyone go do foolish things because eh, we're learning from mistakes I
1: mean, right right no i i agree and it, it, it you know this is just one of of many areas that have to be uh where people have to be developed and, and, you know, it's, it's uh, it can't be done alone. You, you can't just hand over, you know, everything without, uh, without a good leadership team in place, without a good way to approach problems. You know, if, if I do, if I am given decision-making authority, but I have no idea how to solve a problem or how to, uh, you know, run this piece of equipment and you're telling me to figure out how to stop an oil leak, I, uh, what, a, you know, you have to, Have to have the right team around me. I have to be given the right development opportunities. Um, we have to be have we have to have the right culture where I don't I don't feel like I need to be scared if I do mess up, where you know I can I can actually experiment and try some things, but I also need to know when I do need to call on some help, when I don't have the, the expertise to solve a problem on my own. And I so, again, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's not something where I just hand over decision-making rights. It has to be, and again, I go back to this, but every industry, every team, every company is different. And so, everyone's at a different place in their journey. And you might have a team member that is at a place where you can hand over some decision-making authority. And you might have Another place might have a team member that's nowhere near ready for that, right? Mm-hmm. So you definitely, it has to be situational um, and you have to have the right support structure around you in order to um, allow for this this to happen, right? Yeah. Um, but, and that's why I mentioned the fact that, you know, the captain was, he didn't just, sh- you know, shut his door and and say good luck with everything, mm-hmm. right? right? I mean, he was constantly consistent constantly out there with his leadership team, you know, meeting with team members, auditing, uh, talking with them, asking them how they're doing, develop, making sure that they have the right training, developing them in ways that they needed to be developed, right? All of this had to happen in order for them to feel comfortable enough to make decisions. So I do think that it's situational, um, but I also think too, that there are, there are times when uh, people, you know, it, People, there is there is um, in the mil- in the military. There's also a disciplinary process too for when someone does actively uh, go outside of what they should be doing, right? Uh, what they know, they've been trained. They've they they've decided to make a decision against what they were supposed to do, um, and you know there is a disciplinary process for that, and and they're held accountable in that way. Um, but you know they're still you still have to ask yourself you know why are they doing that is is there is the job difficult or is the process not set up properly did you know did they receive the right training you know are they comfortable enough to do it the way that we're asking them to do they know something we don't know i mean those are all things that you have to take into consideration before you move ahead with any kind of disciplinary action or anything like that um, it's it's really as leaders we have to think about what's broken in the process before we try to think about what's broken in the person. I mean, most people come to work and they, they want to do a good job. We, we as leaders have to give them the structure and the system to do a good job.
0: Yeah. Are are you familiar? There's a methodology that's used a lot in healthcare called just culture.
1: I've heard it. Um, I haven't done a ton of work in, in the healthcare area. So
0: I think this would really resonate with you and with other, you know, lean practitioners and leaders who are listening because it basically gives a thought process or an algorithm to try to decide is something that something's gone wrong? Is that a system issue or a people issue? Mm. And it really kind of boils down to like, you know, it's a people issue. It's an individual issue where discipline would be appropriate when, you know, somebody intentionally made a decision to do something that they knew, would harm somebody and that there were no extenuating circumstances such as time pressure, overburden, not having the right equipment. So like, well, we're going to just use this instead. You know, there's a difference between intent and um, systemic barriers. And I think just culture framework and the researchers behind that give us a really practical
1: tool. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I'll definitely take a look at that. Um, That's, that's exactly right though. I mean, there are definitely, you know, you have to you have to think about it both ways. But I think as leaders, you know, a, a lot of a lot of leaders out there, unfortunately, look at people before they look at the process. That's and their assumption. Yeah. That's right. Right. And I think that we have to we have to really try to switch. We have to be intentional about switching that in our minds and and start with the process, mm-hmm. um, because most people do not are trying to sabotage their work environment or their, the work that they're doing. Um, so I think that that's just something as leaders we have to really challenge ourselves for. Yeah.
0: Um, so there, the, I jotted down, and you beat me to the punch. The one question that's a corollary to how safe is it for your people to fail? Is it safe for people to ask for help? Is that the culture I see? Unfortunately, a lot of times in healthcare that is not the culture. Right. If something bad happens, and somebody could be judgmental and say, "Well, that person made a bad decision," but it was. In the context of circumstances that weren't even supposed to ever happen, no one had anticipated it. There was no standard work, and the you know—and and that's a situation where um, somebody should feel safe to ask for help and not be labeled as weak or incompetent. Um, that requires leadership to create that culture where that becomes the norm. It's the proverbial and uncord pull.
1: That's right.
0: Ask for help. And then the third corollary question is, do people get the help when they ask for it? Which you alluded to. There's got to be structure in leadership who responds. Don't leave people hanging.
1: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, I see a lot of organizations. We talk about escalation plans, and when mm-hmm. when something happens, you know, what's the next? What do you do in order to respond to this? And then if that doesn't work, what do you do? You know, so what's the escalation? And you know, unfortunately, a lot of organizations out there either put an escalation process in place and don't follow it, or they don't have one at all. Um, and that's you know, that's usually a, uh, it's a it's a it's a telltale sign that employees are not um supported you know because if you're, you're gonna post this escalation process and then you know the moment that i pull the end on quarter the moment that i raise my hand for help uh nobody's there you know and, and that's all that's a, that's a question that i like to ask when i walk through a company is like i see a red light flashing over there and it's like how long does it take for someone to respond to that you know oh they come right away you know within five minutes like okay well, i got 10 minutes let's let's flip it and see how long it takes you know, i oh, it's been 30 minutes, where are they at?
0: But, I mean, a Toyota plant, that help comes within seconds, right? So right. there's a difference between five minutes could be a really long time. Sure. Depending on the circumstances. Um, yeah. So uh, I was going to ask also, um, oh, there, there was another question. That you're going to yeah, uh, question number eleven. On, I, I lost my train of thought, so I'll just ask you: What was that other of the twelve questions that you wanted?
1: Uh, so, question number eleven is: Are you generating small, simple improvements? Uh, and uh, this is this is a, another really, really great chapter because um, you know a lot of organizations, unfortunately, are, are they're they're shooting for those you know deep those big projects that they want to complete and uh, hoping that that will drive their organization, you know, t- into success. And, um, you know, so many consultants and leaders or Six Sigma uh, belts, you know, they make it seem like that Lee needs to have these deep levels of complexity with these large projects that need to happen. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's just not the truth. You, you ha- really have to think about it like, Uh, a river that runs through rock. And, you know, if you imagine how the Colorado river helped to create what is now the grand Canyon um, it's through persistence, right? Not big, massive projects, but persistence of small, simple improvements over time. And when you're developing your, uh, your learning organization with those small, simple improvements, um, you know, that comes through engaging the minds of your team, Right. So it's the small, simple improvements that add up to some some really, really big benefits. Uh, Paul Akers of FastCap is just uh, f- phenomenal at this. Right. And um, gives us a great example. But um, he's his done a great. What's that? Yeah, his, his
0: book, uh, Two Second Lean. Yes. My, my constructive criticism has always been it really should have been called Two Second Kaizen.
1: Yes. So he's talking sure, about small sure.
0: improvements that even save you two seconds are worth doing. And I applaud that. I embrace that.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and and you know the the one thing that I do get you know pushed back a little bit on this also is um, you know if we're doing a shotgun approach, is that really moving us closer to our true north? So I think you do have to be careful that you've established a a direction for your organization for your team, right? That you have some goals and that your team that you've communicated that and your team understands and knows the direction and and why we're heading that way, right? And how my work every day contributes to those goals or to, to that direction, because when you have that now it's like, okay, what are the the small little things that are getting in your way of moving us closer to hitting those goals or to that true North? And, you know, when people know what those things are now, you know, they, they can help the organization to move that way. And they know at the end of their day, if they've been successful or not, you know Um, but Paul, he comes into work every day, uh, and here comes early enough to walk the floor and he, he goes to the place where the value-add work is being done, right? He's not sitting in his office. He's out there uh, at the, you know, and, and he's exci- He's more excited about the improvements that his team is making than they're excited about them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just a, a, just a great example. Um, I think he does video. They have a company WhatsApp where they share, you know, with each other, uh, all these small little things yeah. that are making such a huge impact as they add up, you know, uh, with each other. Um, and it, it creates a level of consistency and excitement that, you know is um, I say simple and small which sometimes people tie that to easy well it's easy then it's just a small you know you can talk to Paul and it's not easy I mean when you see what he does the uh, the hard work that he has to put in in order to create that level of consistency and excitement it's a lot of hard work um, but it pays off in the end yeah
0: well and we're we gonna also um, we'll take a minute Maybe it's just to um, acknowledge um, the, the, the passing of Norman Bodeck back in mm. uh, December, author of many books, including, you know, I mean, he um, popularized um, what, what he called quick and easy Kaizen. And to your point, uh, Patrick, or to Paul's point, um, a, a small improvement might be quick and easy. I'm going to move my microphone from here to here because it's going to improve the quality of my sound recordings. But creating the culture is a hell of a lot of work.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Such a great point. No, it, it is so true. It's it's the culture uh, that you know because is the moment that you as a leader, if you walk away and it continues, then you know you've you've got you're doing something right, right? But if you as a leader walk away and that things just kind of go back to the, the way that they were, which yes, you do need to continue to follow up. But if you're changing the culture you know, people should start understanding uh, what they need to do without having you as a leader telling them what to do. And they should, and it should just start happening. It becomes the way that you do things, right? I always have my microphone here, because it's just better for us and it's gonna move us closer to you know, whatever that end goal is, right? And, and then maybe I should do this and maybe this, and oh, this, is, this would really help us too, right? Not because someone's telling me to do it or because I'm afraid that if I don't, um, if I don't do it, I'm gonna be in trouble, uh, but because I, I understand the goals and how my work is tied directly to the, the, you know, the, the purpose and you know, where we're heading as an organization.
0: Well, thank you for um, sharing those questions and 10 other questions that we didn't cover here. But um, again, our guest has been Patrick Adams. His book is Avoiding the Continuous Appearance Trap, 12 Questions to Understand What's Truly Underneath Your Culture. I know, Patrick, you said it's available on Amazon, so people can search for that. Um, it's, it's there. Um, what websites would you also point people to uh, uh, So I would- book and or your firm?
1: Sure. Uh, so I would uh, say if you're looking for more information about the book or to order it, uh, you can go to avoidcontinuousappearance.com. Uh, so you can find the book there, links to the book, uh, information about the book. And then uh, our website is findleansolutions.com. And you can uh, you can go out there and, and uh, find more information about what we do, what our firm does, um, what our team does. And uh, I, th- I say, I guess those would be the two websites. If you're interested to reach out to us, you can email uh, our office at patrickadamsconsulting.com um, and we can get information to you that way as well.
0: Okay. And what, what's the email address they would use? I know you said the, the address was patrickadams.com.
1: Uh, office at ah, okay. patrickadamsconsulting.com. <laughs> I heard email.
0: You said it, but I didn't hear it right. I, you know, email the office at patrickadams.com. You were yes. saying, okay. Quotes Sorry. At office at Patrick Adams. Is it Patrick Adams.com or Patrick Adams, Patrick
1: Adams Consulting. Pat-
0: Patrick Adams Consulting.com? Yet another mistake. On my part. <laughs> um, we're we're going to find
1: ourselves on your other podcast here shortly. I
0: hope we do. So um, <laughs> we talk about creating that culture um, where it's safe uh, for people to make mistakes. Paraphrasing your question. Um, yeah, please do join me sometime on my favorite mistake if you're willing to do that.
1: Uh, I have so many mistakes, Mark. I don't know where I would even start. But.
0: Well, so uh, that's right. give give it some thought. And
1: absolutely, I, I would love to
0: see if you can, see if you can come up with um, a favorite. None of my mistakes here are necessarily my favorite, but they are just
1: <laughs>
0: the continuous. I like mistake.
1: that you say my favorite, and I've I've listened to a number of them, and uh, just so some really really great conversations with people uh, being humble enough to admit you know their mistakes and learn from them. Right? I mean, that's the important part. Uh, is that we're learning from our mistakes. And, and that's just, that's how we become better, you know? So uh, I love, love the podcast and uh, I, would, I would love to share uh, my favorite mistake with you sometime. All
0: right. So we'll do that. And um, again, as a reminder uh, for listeners, please do check out Patrick's podcast, the Lean Solutions podcast. Um, continue uh, the great work with that,
1: Patrick. Appreciate that, Mark. Thanks for having me today. Uh, this is yeah. fun. Great conversations.
0: It was. Really, uh, it's good, as always, uh, to talk with you. I'm glad we could record it and share it with everybody here today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast
1: at gmail.com.